We worship at the cross where wrath and mercy meet. Deep wounds of love cry out, Father forgive. I worship the Lamb who was slain. And so as we come to the cross this morning, we pray that we would understand your love and be more amazed by it than ever before, that we may worship you with life and lip for the rest of our lives. Amen. Please do sit. Well, as you uh, settle back and make yourself comfortable, I uh, would encourage you to grab hold of this uh, handout, uh, which will help you to see where we're going in the next few moments, and particularly because I've put quite a lot of quotes on there, um, and uh, the longer quotes, I think it's always helpful if you can uh, read them. I want to congratulate you for making it here. Um, The uh, latest sports news, I gather, is that Sheffield uh, is making a bid for the 2019 Winter Olympics. I don't know whether that's true or not. Uh, but I reckon one or two of you, I've heard of uh, one couple who've uh, walked 45 minutes this morning. You deserve a gold medal. Well done. I'm not going to give you one, but you deserve it all the same. Let me uh, tell you about Steve. Let me tell you Steve's story. You, you won't know Steve, as I mentioned last week through this series when I uh, talk about different people. Um, I've changed names and situations. Uh, Steve is a a committed Christian man, uh, married to a lovely Christian girl. Uh, You'd like him if you met him, everyone does. He has a genuine interest for others and when you speak to him he makes you feel as if you're you're really important. He's gently spoken, he's kind and thoughtful. But if you met Steve you wouldn't know uh, something very important about him, that he had a terrible childhood. You wouldn't know because he doesn't speak about it. But it's a childhood that still affects him today, which is why he came to speak to me. Steve's dad, you see, was really cruel to him. Steve's parents weren't Christians as he grew up. They were church-going people, but not committed Christians. His dad was a professional man, and at work and socially, and at church, his dad always kept the lid on his temper. But at home, that was a different story. He abused his wife and his children physically and verbally. He would lock the children in their rooms for hours on end to punish them. And that was one of the better punishments. Steve told me how when he was little, when his dad flew off the handle, he would drag his sisters around by the hair and how he would put Steve's fingers in kitchen drawers and then slam them shut. Steve, his mum and his sisters were terrified of this monster of a man. He flew off the handle at the slightest thing. At times, Steve, being the eldest of the children, would stand in the way of his mum and his sisters to try and take the anger that his dad had towards them. Apart from the physical abuse, there was verbal abuse too. Steve's dad was always putting the children down. Steve was a good musician and on one occasion he came home proud to tell his parents that he'd been awarded a distinction in a music exam. His dad's response, so? Loads of people achieve distinctions. You'll have something to be proud about when you play in a world-renowned orchestra. As you can imagine, Steve was crushed. Steve left home to go to university and it was when he was in his mid-twenties that he became a committed Christian. And in his words, for the first time I experienced the unconditional love of a father, the love of my loving Heavenly Father. That love changed Steve. Until then, he had a terrible temper that had from time to time seen him hit girlfriends and verbally abuse them. But becoming a Christian changed that. Steve married a lovely Christian girl. They had two beautiful children. He never raised his hand against his wife or his children, but he admitted to me that from time to time he did verbally abuse his wife. 
Steve was uh, worried about that side of his character and he was worried too about the, the, the anger that he still felt towards his dad. And then one day something amazing happened. Steve's dad became a Christian and it proved to be genuine as his life changed. Uh, though not perfect, Steve's dad was no longer the aggressive and spiteful man that he had been. Steve, of course, was thrilled to see his dad become a Christian, thrilled to see the change in his dad, but at the same time he found it hard. He found it hard to forgive his dad for all the hurt and pain of his childhood. Some Christian friends told Steve that he should just forgive his dad and move on, but to Steve, just forgetting the past as if nothing had happened seemed to ignore the injustice of that past. Steve needed to understand, to believe, and to really grasp hold of the truth of propitiation. Propitiation, God's wrath satisfied. Last week in this lead up to Easter, we began looking at the cross of Christ and the the first of, of five big truths that explains what was happening as Jesus died on the cross. Last week we considered Jesus' death as a substitution. This week we look at propitiation. To propitiate somebody means to appease or pacify their anger. I put the dictionary definition on the handout. You see, Christians believe that on the cross Jesus died to pay the penalty for sin and as a result he pacified God's wrath, God's anger. And if we understand it, it is a truth that will affect us at the deepest level. See, Christian, do you ever feel that God is angry at you, with you, because of the way you've lived? you need to understand propitiation. As Steve grappled with his past, he needed to understand propitiation. See, at the heart of propitiation is the truth that the first point on the handout, God's love and holiness means God is angry at sin. Richard Buse uh, defines uh, God's wrath, as again I've put it on here, God's settled antagonism that rests upon those who by their sin have become an offence to him. The idea of a a loving God being angry, I know, causes some people great difficulty. But that's largely because we have such a sentimental and limp understanding of love. Look, I think this is one of the most important things to grasp. The opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. Now, I I carry uh, pictures of my children around with me in my wallet. I guess a number of the parents here do the same. Um, and uh, just looking at them uh, makes me feel quite gooey towards them. Uh, if something happened, something bad happened to my children, and in this day and age it's not difficult to imagine what terrible thing might happen to them, if something terrible were to happen to my children, if they were taken away by a monster of a man, abused and killed, how would you expect me to respond? If I was to say, oh, well, these things happen you would quite rightly call into question my love for my children, wouldn't you? If if I were indifferent to such an atrocity, you would be right to wonder what sort of an unfeeling, unloving person I was. My love for the children is the reason I get upset and angry even at the thought of someone hurting them. So do you see, the opposite of love is not hate or anger, it is indifference. A God who is indifferent to evil is a terrible thought. Most people know that instinctively. Which is why on many occasions people have said to me, I can't believe in a God of love who doesn't care about and then talk about whatever big issue is in the news at the time. When we stop and think about it, we believe that a God of love should act against sin. 
Well, the good news is that God is angry at sin. And it is precisely because God is love that he does get angry at evil. Now we see that in the Bible. In his book on the atonement, Leon Morris points out that there are uh, more than 580 references in the Old Testament to God's wrath. And for those of you who have this strange idea that the Old and New Testament talk of a different God, you'll see on the handout some of the 25 times the wrath of God is mentioned in the New Testament. There's just a few references there for you to look up later if you want. And when you get home, you might like to look up the references where we see Jesus getting angry, in case you think that never happened. And you might also take note of the fact that Jesus speaks of hell more than anyone else in the Bible. There's some references on the sheet there as well. God gets angry at sin and evil. But as we talk of God's anger, we must be careful. God's anger is not like ours. God's anger is nothing like Steve's dad. Mark Driscoll writes, and the the quote is again on the handout, because God is perfect, his anger is perfect, and as such is aroused slowly, sometimes turned away, often delayed, and frequently held back. You see, God doesn't just fly off the handle at the most trivial irritation. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, God himself tells us that he is slow to anger. It takes something very serious indeed to provoke God to anger, which incidentally means if he is angry, we ought to take it very seriously. Further, as we talk of God's anger, be sure God is not spiteful or vindictive and his anger is not unpredictable. There is one thing and one thing alone which arouses God's wrath and that is sin. And God is always angry with sin. John Stott summarises it brilliantly. God's anger is absolutely pure and uncontaminated by those elements which render human anger sinful. Human anger is usually arbitrary and uninhibited. Divine anger is always principled and controlled. Our anger tends to be a spasmodic outburst aroused by pique and seeking revenge. God's is a continuous settled antagonism aroused only by evil and expressed in its condemnation. God is entirely free from personal animosity or vindictiveness. Indeed, he is sustained simultaneously with undiminished love for the offender. Now look, all that means that as a little boy, Steve was right to feel angry at his dad. Steve was right to try and confront the injustices in the home and to try and protect the rest of the family. It did him no good, but he was right to try. Christian here, don't believe the lie that Christians never get angry. You should feel anger towards sin. But as I say that, at the same time, don't think I'm saying that it's right for us to lose our temper. That itself is sin. It is sinful to get angry over trivial things or personal irritations. We mustn't excuse our our sinful selfishness in the name of righteous anger. But we should get angry over things that matter to God. Mark Driscoll again, this time over the page, writes this. The truth is that when evil, injustice and oppression occur, the right feeling is anger that compels us to do all we can to defeat injustice and protect the weak and vulnerable. So Steve was right to be angry at his dad's appalling behaviour because God was angry at that behaviour. But, and this is a big but, God is also right to be angry not only with Steve's dad but with Steve and with all of us. 
See, by his own admission, Steve himself had been violent with others in the past. He admitted that he had shouted uncontrollably at his wife on occasions. And while it was nothing compared to his dad's outburst, it was still wrong. And there are other things in Steve's life. Before he was married, he looked at pornography, he had sex with girlfriends, he'd been selfish and hadn't helped those in need. Steve is a sinner, as we all are. God is angry at all sin. Now, God is especially angry at the sin of idolatry. Again, I've put references on the handout that show that. Listen especially, though, to Exodus chapter 32, verses 8 to 10. This is God speaking to Moses about the people of God in Exodus 32. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. God is angry at all sin, but we see his anger burning when people are idolatrous. Now, if you were here last week, we saw that at the heart of sin is substitution. Uh, Last week, I quoted John Stott saying this, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, me putting myself in the place of God, making up the rules, me deciding to be God. At the heart of sin is substitution. Well, look, the... The essence of the sin of idolatry is exchange. Exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Romans chapter 1 says that. Again, I put the reference on the handout. Exchanging God for other things. It's a terrible exchange, but we all do it. So the God who gives us everything, life and breath and friends and fun and beauty and meaning and and satisfaction and snow and sun, The God who gives us everything, we toss aside for other things. We are always looking for other things to give us what only God can give us. See, idolatry is an exchange. It is putting anything in the place of God. An idol is often a a good thing that we've made into an ultimate thing. Good things that God gives us. So you can make an idol of family or work or relationships or sex. All good things that God made, but we make them into the ultimate thing. Now, we've seen that this week in the news, haven't we? Tiger Woods has made an idol of sex. I think he's made an idol of a number of things, but sex is one of them. He's exchanged the truth that we can only find ultimate satisfaction in God and in living his way, and he's looked for satisfaction apart from God and apart from God's ways. Now, that's an extreme example, but be sure we all have our idols. We toss God aside and we look for meaning and satisfaction in success, material possessions, holidays, you name it. That's a terrible thing to do. Now look, to try and get hold of it, I I don't suppose you like being ignored. I don't. I don't suppose you like being used. And I imagine that you like it even less if you are used and then ignored. But that is exactly what we do with God. And that is why idolatry is so wicked. We are creatures created by him. We owe our very life to God. Not just the fact that we exist, but every breath we take comes from God. Every good thing we have comes from him. 
And although we owe him everything, we want to live independently of him and we try to replace him with pathetic things that can't ever meet our needs. You see, God is right to be angry at sin and idolatry. And this was the big issue that Steve needed to grasp. Oh, Steve knew he was a sinner. He was a real Christian man. But he needed to grasp that his sin, as well as his dad's sin, rightly provoked God's anger. Well, the first point then, God's love and holiness means God is angry at evil. But the wonderful truth of propitiation tells us that Jesus has acted to appease God's anger. And so we come to the second point on the handout. God's love and mercy means God takes his anger upon himself. See, as we saw last week and again this week, it would be wrong of God to ignore evil. But God is loving and merciful. Exodus 34 verse 6 again tells us that he is compassionate and gracious, abounding in love, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Now in Jesus we see God's love and his justice coming together. Listen again to the second of the two readings that uh, we had just a little bit earlier. 1 John 4 verse 10 says this, This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, as a propitiation, there's the word, and the footnote in the NIV when you get home says this, as the one who would turn aside God's wrath, taking away our sins. Propitiation. Here is one of the most remarkable truths about God. God loves those who have hated him. And here's the thing. Here's a thing that I don't think I'd quite grasped in the way that I have in my preparation this week. God loves those he is hostile towards. So listen listen to the great 16th century reformer, uh, John Calvin. Again, quote on on the handout. The word propitiation has great weight for God in a way that cannot be put into words at the very time when he loved us, was hostile to us, till he was reconciled in Christ. Mark Driscoll makes the same point, perhaps more clearly. In a mysterious conflict of deep emotions, God continues to love unrepentant sinners who he simultaneously hates. God loves those who he is angry with. And at the cross, God acted not only in love, but in a way that satisfied his righteous anger. That's propitiation. Now we've uh, looked at lots of Bible verses but turned none of them up. So come with me as we draw to a close uh, to Mark chapter 15 and we'll see this propitiation in action. Mark chapter 15, page 1022, the uh, first of the two readings that uh, Stephen read so well for us uh, just a little while ago. Page 1023, Mark chapter 15. Now I dare say um, those who come to church regularly will be very familiar with this reading. Maybe you don't come very often and this will be all new to you. But it's amazing, amazing little couple of verses we're going to look at. Mark 15, verse 33. This is Jesus on the cross. And at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now there is God's anger. You may not at first notice it, but there is God's anger. At the sixth hour, midday, from midday, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. What a moment. In the heat of a Middle Eastern day, from 12 till 3, the whole land was dark. It must have been an astonishing experience to have been there. 
And any God-fearing Jew who knew his history would have known that darkness in the daytime was a sign of God's anger and judgment. Now do you remember in Exodus, in the Exodus and the plagues, how God judged Egypt by sending darkness over the land? Exodus chapter 10. In Amos, judgment, is, judgment Day is described as a day of darkness, Amos chapter 5. And you'll find the same in Ezekiel chapter 32. All the references are on the handout. The point is this, time and again in the Bible, light symbolises God's presence and his favour, while darkness tells us God is angry, acting in judgment. But here's the surprise as we go back to Mark 15. The next verse tells us where God's anger was directed. Verse 34, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was abandoned. Jesus was God's forsaken. Jesus was on the receiving end of God's anger. That's the surprise. See, at the scene of the cross, we would expect God to be angry. Angry at the people for crucifying his son. Angry for such a gross miscarriage of justice, punishing an innocent man who didn't deserve to die. And of course, God was angry at that. But this is quite different. Verse 34 tells us God's anger fell on Jesus. What a surprise. Do you remember at Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1, the voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love? But now God's beloved son cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Why is Jesus God forsaken? Why is the most loving man who ever lived rejected by God? This is the propitiation of God. This is how his wrath was appeased. Jesus takes the wrath of a rightly angry God He takes it from us so that we are loved and not hated. In the old Anglican prayer book, in the Holy Communion service, many of you will be familiar with this, Jesus' death is described like this, as a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and here's the word, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Jesus' death satisfies God's wrath. In case you're worried, this is thoroughly Anglican theology. And as the Graham Kendrick song says, as we sang it earlier, at the cross, wrath and mercy meet. Richard Buse wrote this to me in an email. I I wrote to him um, saying I remembered that he had a great definition of uh, God's wrath and asked him to, told him what I was preaching on and he wrote a lovely email back and here's another quote from it. The cross does something to God himself in removing from him his own unswerving anger that rests upon those who by their rebellion have become an offence to him. And so do you see this? For the real Christian, God is not angry with you anymore. He was, but no more. He has poured his anger out upon Jesus. This is how Paul writes it in Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Christ? Steve needed to know that. Steve needed to know that for himself and Steve needed to know that for his dad. And here's why Steve should not be angry with his dad anymore. Here's how Steve could forgive his dad. He didn't have to just let his dad off the hook now that he'd become a Christian. He needed to see that at the cross, wrath and mercy had met 
Jesus substituted himself for Steve's dad and suffered and died in his place. Not in spite of his sins, but because of his sins. You see, in the past, when Steve thought about all that his dad had done, he wanted bad things to happen to his dad. He wanted, I guess, God's wrath to have been poured out on his dad. But Steve needed to see that God's wrath could just as easily have been poured out on him, on Steve. But it wasn't. It was taken by Jesus. And that's how Steve came to be able to forgive his dad. Understanding propitiation. He didn't need to be able to spell it just to understand it. Now, Christian here, are you angry about some sin against you from another Christian. Do you see, Jesus has taken God's anger for that sin. It would now actually be wrong of you to be angry over that sin and not least of all because of the way God has treated you. He has diverted his wrath for your sin upon Jesus. It's how he treated you, it's how he treats other Christians so you have no right to be angry at them. A Christian here, are you worried that God is angry at you for some terrible crime you've committed? Well, let me ask you, as I asked last week, have you turned to Jesus in repentance and faith? Have you repented of that sin, really turned from it? Have you turned to Jesus to be your sin-bearing saviour? If you have, then your sin has been dealt with. God cannot be angry at you. He has poured out his anger upon Jesus. He can't now pour it out upon you as well. That would be wrong. And those here who are not yet committed Christians, again, well done for coming through the snow. But I wonder if this morning you've begun to realise that your sinful idolatry causes God to be angry with you. Maybe you never realised that before. Someone said to me recently, and he's close to death, he said, I'm not frightened of dying. And we'd been talking about Christian things for a long time. And I said to him, look, you need to be. For to meet the almighty, all-powerful, living God is a terrible prospect. But I went on to say to him what I'd already been saying to him. It need not be a terrible prospect. If you repent and believe, turn away from a life of exchanging God for other things. Accept Jesus' sacrifice as your propitiation. I didn't use that word with him. But if he could accept Jesus' sacrifice as his propitiation to take God's wrath away from him, he need not be worried about death. We all have the same choice. We can take the full force of God's anger ourselves or we can let Jesus take it for us. And so if you're not yet a Christian, here's the verse for you. Again, it's on the handout. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. We deserve to be on the receiving end of God's rightful anger, But God has acted in a wonderfully loving and, here's the point, self-sacrificing way to take that anger from us. And that's the most amazing thing about all of this. To grasp just how amazing God's love is, listen to this, it is God himself who takes that anger upon himself. As we thought last week, Jesus is not some innocent third party who lived this fantastically wonderful life while he was on earth and then God took this innocent human being and said you're going to take the wrath of God that would be wrong of God wouldn't it no Jesus is God himself and so John John Stock can write this final quote on the 
handout and this is, I think, my favourite John Stock quote of any. And if you remember nothing else, remember this. Put this on your fridge. God is at the heart of divine propitiation. It is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating and God himself who in the person of his own son died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in his own self, in his own son when he took our place and died for us. What a God. What love. Let's pray together. We worship at your feet where wrath and mercy meet. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness of the flood, when the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Help us to grasp how amazingly loving you are as we look at the cross over these next weeks, Heavenly Father. And help us to be so overwhelmed by that love that our lives would be changed, we would worship you, in life and lip, for the rest of our days. In Jesus' name, Amen.